Listening to The Holistic Voice with your hosts, Austin Vitaliano and Jordan Reynolds. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the 10th episode of The Holistic Voice. It is a beautiful morning. Uh, the cherry blossoms are just peeking through in Washington, D.C. Uh, Jordan, how are you doing? I'm doing so good. I'm also about to go see Whitney Robinson, who was on episode 7 with us talking about classical auditions. She has a recital at the Old South Meeting House. So oh, get out. Super looking forward to that. Yeah, tell Whitney that I say hello. Do you know any of the pieces that she's doing? I have absolutely no idea. Perfect. That's going to be really fun. <laughs> awesome. A little surprise for you. Um, that's great. So, okay, before we go into our life updates, Jordan, do you want to tell all of our listeners what we just booked? Yeah, so May 23rd. We're going to be in Chicago for the Classical Singer Convention. So it's this huge music competition. There's going to be people from all over, high school, college age, pre-professional. And I'm hoping a lot of you will be there too. So we would love to meet you. Austin and I haven't seen each other since August. So it's going to be amazing to be in the same location, being able to film some episodes and talk to people that are there. I'm just pulling up the website now, www.c as in Charlie S. Music.net. And they have nearly 100 university programs, summer programs, sheet music vendors, uh, and more represented in these Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, the 23rd through the 26th of May. We will be there. So we will also be doing a master class, uh, and that list will be available online for sign up in April. So again, Make sure to follow along as we post on Instagram, we post on Facebook, we give you all updates so you can come and say hi to both of us in person. So Austin, what's been going on for you lately? So I don't know if you remember, but a few episodes ago, maybe last episode, I auditioned for the D.C. Maryland Local National Association of Teachers of Singing competition, a.k.a. NATS. And I was lucky enough to place first in my division. And then I moved on to the regional auditions that happened just this past week. And I spent all day singing for many different judges. They tallied up the scores. And I got through first place in my division again. So I can't believe that happened, but it was an amazing day. Super rewarding. My teacher and... Uh, Maxine, my girlfriend, had a chance to see me perform uh, at the end of the day. And so it was really, really great. Next steps are in Minnesota for the national competition. So stay tuned for something like that. Amazing. Really looking forward to hearing about that. Absolutely. I was super excited. Couldn't believe it. But how about you? There's some more exciting news going on in your life. Yeah. So I talked about the song that I've been doing with my sister. It's going to be out on April 9th. So we're going to release a video. I'll share it on the Holistic Voice page, uh, a link on Instagram, all that. So you can follow it there. And if you wait to the end of this episode, I'm going to play a clip from it. So stay stay tuned. Oh, yes. Okay. I'm really excited. So this episode, we have Rachel Willis Sorensen joining us. Rachel Willis Sorensen is an amazing artist, soprano, sings at the Metropolitan Opera and all over Europe. 
um, has an incredible career and happens to do it while also having a small family. She's got, I believe, three kids. She's really a superstar and very fortunate to have her on the show. Yeah. How did you get a chance to interview her? She has, uh, I, I've been looking at her schedule online and she is just busy, busy, busy. So her voice teacher was my voice teacher in my undergrad, Daryl Babbage. What? So, yeah. So that's how we were able to make that connection. My gosh. Well, I can't wait to hear the interview that you'd have prepared. So let's just jump right into it. So welcome to Holistic Voice. I'm here with Rachel Willis Sorensen. She's a fantastic soprano, just came back from singing at the Metropolitan Opera in the role of Donna Anna. And she's going to be making her debut here in Boston at the Boston Symphony Orchestra, singing in Dvořák's Stavat Mater. Thanks so much for being on the show today. You are most welcome. Thank you for having me. So I'd love to start with just your background. Um, I have always really loved music and singing. I remember when I was about five years old, I saw The Little Mermaid, the Disney Little Mermaid. And apparently from one listen, I like knew the whole song, Part of Your World, and I would sing it all the time. And my mom was like, wow, this girl really knows all the words. It's funny when they tell the story, I'm like, well, that's not a skill of singing. That's a skill of text memorization, which I also possess, thank heavens, yeah. <laughs> because there are thousands of pages of music in my brain. <laughs> yeah, especially in opera. I feel like that's really yeah. important. <clears throat> and I, actually, opera seems to suit me so well because it answers so many of my deep yearnings, like the music, the acting, and the multiple languages. I've always been very interested in language acquisition and so that's really fun, but I just loved music. I remember my parents talking about when I was very small, I would jump off my dad's lap when he was watching TV and dance around whenever there were commercials because of the music. I just love music, respond to music. But I started taking voice lessons when I was almost 17 in a group class, and I had previously sung a lot of um, Broadway-style musicals and in, in concert choir and jazz choir in high school. And I'd won a lot of awards through the jazz choirs, like outstanding soloist. I would always have a solo. We'd go to competitions. There's a lot of jazz choir action in the Pacific Northwest from whence I hail. And yeah, I thought it was some hot stuff. I really did not understand what I could learn from voice lessons at all, which is so hilarious because when I went to my first voice lesson, I remember walking in like, well, I'm this great singer. And then the teacher started talking about it. And I was like, what? There's like a whole technique you have to learn. Oh my gosh. And I was so tense. I had so many problems, but you can get away with a lot of stuff singing contemporary styles before anyone tells you, oh, you're screaming. You could really hurt yourself. And I would lose my voice like once a week. I just had a native husk in the voice. And like, I was so aggressive with my poor instrument. So my teacher made me speak with a fake British accent for like a year. Every time I talked to her, I had to say, hello, Elaine. (laughs) Elaine Chopral was my teacher in the Tri-Cities, Washington. Now she lives in Rhode Island. Then I developed that skill over the course of the next like 10 years. And I started my, I went to BYU for my undergrad and graduate degree. I won the Eleanor McCollum competition, which is the HGO Houston Grand Opera Studio competition and I was granted a position in it. So I rushed to finish my graduate degree in one year instead of two and went to to begin my apprenticeship at the Houston Grand Opera Studio in 2009, graduated in 2011, started winning competitions. As a result of the Belvedere competition I did in Vienna, I was given my debut at Covent Garden, uh, the Countess and the Major Figaro, which got me some attention. Things were rolling. I took a fest contract in Dresden, which means I was working at one theater company for three seasons, in the which I had three children. <laughs> I had my daughter after the, f- like, let's see. So I moved there in 2012. Actually, that's funny. I became pregnant with her nearly immediately. And then we, so we had her in August of 2013. And then about a year later, I was like, wow, I think we could have another. And then I had twins. <laughs> oh, 
so I had twins before she was two. It was really intense. And from the hospital in Dresden, having my twins, I was like, this just got really serious. We need to move closer to family. And both of my sisters were planning to live. One of them already did. And the other was moving from LA to Boise, Idaho. So we bought a house in Boise, Idaho, having never seen it from the internet. And we moved there and we've been living there briefly for like these tiny snatches of time, like throughout the last three years. And now it's on the market and we're moving actually to Linden, Utah. We close on a house there in March. That's basically my story. Now I have, as of the last year, I have new management, which is a great fit, a better fit than where I was before. And things are kind of going on a big up tick again. So that's good. Things are good. I'm very happy. I get to sing all kinds of stunning music and I'm having a great time. And it's a challenge, but it's a rewarding challenge. Wonderful. So I would love to hear what you have to say about, you know, your career path. You mentioned that there were a lot of competitions uh-huh. that kind of um, got you to where you are today. But I would love to talk about other paths you've seen. Everyone has like their unique path. So it's, it's really hard to say this is the key to success. Go do this. But I would love to hear from your perspective, some things that you've seen in common from singers around you. I think the majority of the great singers that I interact with have this one common quality, which is they believe in the product that they have to offer and they believe in the way that they're offering it. And this is really important. This was so important for me. When you're a young artist, when you're a student, you are like, you know, trying to rub off all the hard edges. You're trying to like perfect your product. So you tend to start second guessing yourself all the time. And the element that initially drew you to the art form in the first place, you can lose because you are trying to homogenize yourself into the idea of what other people want to hear and see. And that is destructive. Your art is already in you. You already have all the answers. You might be looking outward to find them because you have to smooth, you have to develop a technique that enables you to tell your story in the most efficient way. That's very important. It's also important that you tell your story, not somebody else's. So when I made a real shift in my thinking and I went from, I love singing, I want to sing. How can I sing? How can I make people listen? Okay, I'll do whatever you say. I'll give you whatever you want. Just show me what you want to hear and I'll do that. You know, do you want to hear this quietly? Do you want to hear it loud? Do you want to hear this legato? Do you want to hear a marcato? Like I can do all the things. Watch me, watch me. You know, this desperate energy, which is inherent to youth, this eagerness, you know, um, but it comes across as like a vulnerability and people believe the story you tell them about yourself. And that story is accidentally, I don't have a worthwhile product to offer. I have to give you what you want. When I, I did Opera Alley in 2014, Placido Domingo said at a press conference, someone asked him, what's the secret to your longevity? And he said, well, as long as I like singing and I can sing and people want me to sing, I don't know why I shouldn't sing. And I was like, what? Mind blown. It is that simple. It is that simple. Actually, even, I don't know, I haven't given this a ton of thought before this moment, but even if you only had one of those elements, like if you like singing, you should sing, you know? You, because what I realized is singing is its own reward. I was doing it too much for the external validation. You know, if you are able to provide a product that they want, then they'll tell you how great you are. And that's, ugh, that's, what I, that's not a reason to do it. You need to do it because it's its own reward, because you enjoy what you are saying. So then I realized the only real skill to develop here is your own taste, being able to produce a sound and a, and a product that you would buy, that you would believe in, you know, something you want to see and hear from the audience. That's all you have to do. You can't actually provide someone else with what they want to see and hear 
because you're not in them. You don't know what that is, but you know your own taste. When you go to the opera, for example, or to a concert and you hear singers and you go, that one is really knocking me over. There's something so vulnerable, so stunning or so strong, whatever qualities are drawing you in, analyze that, figure out what that is and figure out how to provide your own version of it. That's the skill that you need. And that's the skill that the greatest singers that I've ever worked with all have. They know what they want to say with their singing and they say that thing. The funny thing about that is everybody in the room has a thing they want to say with your singing. You know, there's all sorts of coaches and critics that will tell you it should be done this way. And you have to say, well, I can evaluate that and look if it fits within my schematic. But if it doesn't, you have to reject it in spite of maybe they have more experience than you in a certain way, but you are the one, you are the orifice through which the art is coming. So you have to say, this is this, I believe in my product. I am standing up for my product. I am saying what I want to say with this. This is, this is critical because the more you eat yourself up trying to live up to someone else's standard, the more you will feel like you fail. You will never be happy. And even the validation that you receive will feel cheap because you don't believe in it. Do you know what I mean? You can only buy into it for a minute before you realize I'm a fraud. I, you know, you have to believe in your own product. It's absolutely necessary. Yeah. Thank you. That's super powerful, I think. And superlatively expressed. Sorry, I'm a little bit intense. I really believe in this because when I heard Placido Domingo say those things, then the next day I had done one round of the competition like a puppy, like somebody tell me what you want and I'll do whatever it is. And I luckily progressed to the next round in which I was like, I don't know what the outcome will be. I don't know what they're looking for, but I know that I love this music and I know that how I want to sing it. And that's all I did. And so when it was done, I had had a great time. I enjoyed myself. It was just another opportunity to perform the music. So then I was like, I don't even care about the outcome. And the minute that happened, all the feedback went from like, well, you know, you could improve this and this to like, wow, you're really great. You're really saying something worthwhile. Suddenly, seriously, overnight, I was invulnerable. People were, people were not, I mean, very seldom now do I get harsh criticism. I used to have so much of it, heavy handed criticism. I couldn't even cope. It was really unpleasant for me. And now I'm telling you, people believe the the story you tell them about yourself. And when I say, when my inherent story is, I love this music. I know what I want to say with it. Then people are moved by it and they don't say, you should be doing this all differently. You're not telling my story. You know, no one says that people just enjoy it. The majority of the time, I mean, there are obviously exceptions. (laughs) We all have to endure a little bit of criticism now and again, but, but it just made a difference. And so I ended up winning that competition, three different categories of that competition. And I had such a good time. I didn't even care. It was weird. I mean, I was nervous, obviously, when they were announcing the winners, like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to win? And they said third place and it wasn't me. And I was like, oh, okay, well, second place and it wasn't me. And I'm like, well, too bad. It was nice to participate. I had a great time. And then I got first place. (laughs) It was amazing. After already being rewarded by the experience itself. Do you see what I'm saying? So then it was just like compounded exponentially. It was really wonderful. Instead of being like, I need to win to live. Yeah. I mean, that's not healthy. It's not. And then you're not enjoying what you're doing. And then like, why are we doing it in the first place? Yeah. What's the point of all the t- life is too short for that. Yeah. I feel like in classical music in particular, we're prone to overanalyzing kind of. Yeah. I call it perfection mongering. Yeah. Because there's so much that goes into like learning technique, just building it for so long yeah. that it's easy to slip into that mentality of like, oh, I have to do this, get to the next thing. And then suddenly you don't enjoy it anymore. And so it's really important to keep that alive. 
So I think that's fantastic advice. What would you say about quieting the other voices? Because I think it's one thing to know it needs to be about what you love. But how do you quiet those voices around you and really hone into what it is that you want and become clear on that? How do you silence that external voice? By strengthening your internal voice. That's what I think. Also, lately, I've taken to this horrible diva practice where when I'm getting criticism that I don't like, I say, thank you so much. And I walk away. I just turn around and walk away from it. If you stand there, they will keep going. Do you know what I mean? They will keep telling you how garbage you did or whatever, how they don't like it. And that's fine. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. If your opinion is that what you did was worth doing, who cares what someone else thinks? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Can you talk to us about your practice habits, practicing for voice throughout college maybe, and then what, you're, what it looks like now? So kind of a before and after. Well, I used to overpractice the high notes. I'm not very... I wasn't very good at high notes without a ton of effort, and so, but I was doing it too much. And it's like, in my opinion now, you have a finite quantity of high notes in a day, so I'm not the type to go into a practice room and scream high C a hundred times. Like, I think you pay a price. Maybe some people don't. And I've heard there are two kinds of voices, robust and anemic. Anemic voices have to keep training constantly to keep it working, and robust voices should be more sparing in the amount they sing because I think maybe... Now that I'm saying that out loud, I heard that from a vocal enthusiast from Israel once. I can't even remember her name, but maybe I don't agree because ultimately if robust means excessive muscular involvement on the aperture of the vocal folds, the reason they can't sing much is because they're harming themselves. So, I mean, practicing, I did a lot of practicing and then I switched to Daryl Babbage and he said, I don't want you to practice at all. The first semester I was with him, he was like, you can learn rep quietly, but I just want you to sing when you're in this studio which was crazy and revolutionary, yeah. but it really helped me because I wasn't practicing bad habits and I was learning a new way of singing. Interesting. And so he, he was monitoring my development very slowly over that course. And Is that now, a weekly lesson? Yeah, yeah, a weekly lesson. And now I don't tend to practice technique except, I mean, I warm up. I warm up before I sing, and that is that would be to get myself into a good technical position. The majority of my practicing now happens in the learning of repertoire. Okay, great. Um, and I just want to say real quickly... That warming up, you have a lot of that on your Instagram account. Yeah. Um, so if you want to know like the specific warm-ups that Rachel does, you can go there. Um, so like... Rachel Will Sorensen on Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the main account. Do you do other social media or is Instagram kind of the focus? Um, I think the same content usually goes up everywhere, except I do a lot of Instagram stories, for example, that are temporary and they wouldn't go up on Facebook. But I also have a Facebook and a Twitter so my Twitter is RWSing, and my Facebook is also my name, Rachel Will Sorensen. Okay. Definitely check that out. There's some really fantastic tips for Thank singers. You. Yeah. I'm, like, I love it so much. And it's, <sighs> it's a lot of the stuff that I want to get to our listeners. And so, yeah, I'm hoping that all of you check it out. I love it. I love connecting with my little community and talking about singing and the psychology of singing and what it is to have a career and how I did it and you know how it's going, those sort of things. It's really, it's really wonderful. So I'm happy to connect with anyone who reaches out. I try to answer all the private messages personally. So everyone's welcome to come and join me. Wonderful. And you're right. Probably Instagram is the best way. Cool. So again, with the practicing, so you probably answer a lot of this on Instagram, but how long is that practice normally? You mean like the like warm up? Daily. Yeah. So I, unfortunately, time is so finite. I, when I have a performance or even a rehearsal where it's important that I sing out, I will take 20 minutes to warm up. 
Sometimes I can do it in 10, but I prefer 20 because I want to do lip trills. This is like blowing raspberries, but I do scales behind it for 15 minutes. That's the, that's my favorite thing. I talk about that a lot on Instagram, but it's like an intrinsic vocal massage. So it, it removes inflammation from the vocal folds, this gentle vibration. I mean, some people prefer a lip, uh, lip trills alone, but I like to do it with the tongue because the, the root of the tongue rests on the top of the larynx. And I find that this just gets more engagement. I learned this in a weird way. I mean, it was suggested to me by my teacher, Daryl Babbage, because he had to sing something really, really low, and he got his voice to be super relaxed by doing these lip trills for half an hour. Um, after he was teaching lessons to tenors, this, he taught lessons to tenors all day. So it's like his voice was, you know, set very high. Uh-huh. He's a baritone, but he did a bass part in an oratorio. So he told me this tongue trill exercise was really helpful to relax the mechanism. I sang Elsa and Lohengrin for the first time. I had covered it as the first part of my young artist experience at Houston Grand Opera. I performed it um, in a revival production in Berlin, which had five days of rehearsal, and then we opened with no day off. And I was so vocally fatigued by the time we opened because I was worried about not getting it in the body. So I was singing out every rehearsal six hours a day, Wagner. By the end of the week, I was like, I don't even... I was like, hey, my name, you know how you, for women, when you oversing, you lose your feet. That's what I like to call it. The low goes first. Maybe it's like the extreme high go, or the low goes, then the extreme high, and then slowly just eats away until you have nothing left. I have had all these phases happen to me, but um, I was so tense from all the singing that I went out and like, I just, I just had to find a reason. And someone told me, find a vibrator. And I found a vibrator. <laughs> I'm sorry. Don't offend anyone or whatever. But I vibrated my larynx on the outside and I was able to sing the performance. It just would. So this vibration, but I realized you can do it with your tongue. You can say for 15 minutes and it will vibrate the inflammation and the tension out of the larynx. So this is for me really important when I, I'm getting to the point where I'm even a little superstitious about it. Like if I, if I can't do it, then I get like, Oh, I don't know how it's going to go. I try to do it as much as I can. I've had to do performances before with only like one or two minutes of that, but the, and they still went okay. But I just tend to feel, you could tell and everyone should try this. Just do tongue trills on scales and make a timer. Even if you just do five minutes, the aperture becomes more efficient, the closure of the vocal folds. And it just, it relaxes the mechanism. Yeah. And you think spending time in that is really what does the trick for that. So like I, not just, I do think so. Not just doing a few scales. It's like living in it for a few minutes. Yeah. And I like to go to the extreme ends of both, both sides of the voice. So I start in the middle, probably around middle C and go all the way up as high as I can. And then come down by half steps all the way down as low as I can and then back up as high as I can and then back down to the middle. That takes about 15 minutes. And by the end, everything is really relaxed. It just, it really works for me. That's really interesting. Okay. Yeah. I love that too, because the last episode that we just did with Rebecca Kleinberger, we talk a lot about vocal vibration and vibration therapies. Oh, cool. And so that's just nice to, to, to plug in. That I'm right. In, I'm so into that. Yeah. 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 That's great. So your next thing coming up after this is Rosalka. Yeah. Well, I'm doing a, my first Verdi Requiem in between there. Oh. I don't think it's officially been announced, but I'm so excited. In Naples, in a broadcast, there's only one concert. Why do I agree to these things? I've never done it before, but sure, I'll do it on television in Italy. <laughs> it's not like people know Verdi very well there, right? Oh my gosh. So I'm doing that in the beginning of April. And then my next opera engagement is Rusalka in San Francisco. I'm so excited. <laughs> Speaking of The Little Mermaid, right? That was my first, that was my first singing. And now... <laughs> yeah. I get to do the operatic version. That's so great. 
Yeah, very excited. Have you noticed anything preparing for the Stavit Mater um, with Dvorak, just like Dvorak's signature? On it's both just of those? so lovely. He just writes in such a beautiful way. There are some really interesting challenges in this Stavit Mater. For example, I have a lot of floaty notes that are super long, like really high. There's a G. It's not that high, but I, if I timed it, I want to say it's like 20 seconds and you cannot breathe. I mean, and I notice in recordings a lot of times this part is approached in a way that I am trying to not do it, not to be horrible. I mean, those women obviously were very adept. They were given the opportunity to record the repertoire, but I just hear a lot of straight tone on it, which I'm wondering, like, I haven't worked with a conductor yet, so we'll see what his taste is. But I don't, I don't love straight tone as a means of holding a note longer. I think it's not healthy for the instrument and that that tension actually will cause less air efficiency than if you are just relaxed and relying on the Bernoulli principle. A relaxed voice is promoting an efficient use of your air. So that's, I mean, that's my opinion. We'll see what happens. Yeah. But I really, I really enjoy it. It's beautiful and it's, it just flows in this lovely way. It's also very sad. The, the stop at Mater is very sad. Um, it yeah, was, it's just from the subject matter itself. Yeah, he wrote it after the death of three of his children. Oh my goodness. And it's about Mary grieving the loss of... Christ. So it is, it's very sad. It's deep. I, I mean, I think that's good for us. I think that the, the catharsis you can enjoy is really healthy and cleansing. So that's why we do these pieces. Yeah. Yeah. Pieces like that. And like Kinder told them leader, the mother, like stuff yeah. like that. Just, <clears throat> yeah. It's powerful. Prepare the feels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I wish I could see the, the San Francisco production. I wish I was out in California by then. But, Thank you. Yeah. Maybe maybe you never say never. It's yeah. not till June. Got to June, tons of yeah. time. Uh-huh. Who knows what could happen <laughs> until then, I guess. But um, that's going to be a fantastic role for you. Um, oh, thanks. I happened to catch um, your performance of Song to the Moon on YouTube. You can also find that on your on her website. You go look that up. Thank you for the plug. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah, it's a beautiful piece. Actually, on that subject, someone told me when I was a young artist, don't sing Rosalka because people only want to hear Renee Fleming in it, and you'll never be one-tenth the artist that she is. <laughs> Someone that with influence and casting ability told me this, and I was like, oh, gosh, I'm nothing. I'm terrible. But then I got a chance to work with Renee Fleming, and she was so kind and so complimentary about my singing, and she said, Rusalka's great. You should do it all the time. And I was like, wow, from herself, from the Rusalka. So, yeah, that's funny. It's funny how things turn around, and I mean... Now I'm singing it in San Francisco in a David McVicker production. He's one of my most favorite directors. He really is true to the source material and knows every element, knows what everyone is saying all the time, really cares about the source material, which is unfortunately not always the case with directors. But anyway, I'm, uh, I couldn't be happier. Dvorak loves like folk music. And I feel like that kind of, you, you feel that a lot in his music. Oh, just yeah. Folksy melodies that come in that just stay with you and are just gorgeous. Right. Unapologetically beautiful. Yeah. In my opinion, it definitely does not come across as kitsch, though. I think you could be too, you, you could be cheap or whatever, but that's not what he's accomplishing in spite of, yeah, utilizing these like more simplistic melodic gestures. It still comes across as very important music. Yeah. Which is like such a masterful thing to do to take something so simple and be able to develop it. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. So let's talk about your family life for a bit. My family. So, your yeah. family. Yeah, because you have three children. The sinking children. ship. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a hundred kids. No, I have three kids. And they're so sweet. My children are so sweet. And they're so distinct. Each one is so different. And it's funny. 
we were talking about this before we began, but when you have a child, at first you think, I'm going to show you about life and I'm going to teach you all the important things. And then pretty soon you realize, wow, everything I have to teach you is so banal and simplistic, like the sounds the animals make and what colors are called and stuff. But they teach these unbelievable life lessons, like unconditional love and patience in the face of adversity and long suffering. They teach you things. I don't know how you, you just, it's like a, such a school being a parent is such a school in my opinion. And I've come to the conclusion that I get more out of being their parent than they do out of having a parent. I mean, it's, it's so lovely. And actually Renee Fleming said that in her book and Placido Domingo told me that I'm so glad you have children because it will make you a better artist. So this is an interesting question because when I was a young artist, I heard from multiple sources, you may not have both. And a lot of people said, if you're going to be an opera singer, you can't have children. And then some people said, well, you can make it work if you're fest somewhere in Germany. Mm-hmm. You can make it work if you, you know, if you have five nannies and you do all these things, but it's going to be really hard and ultimately your career will suffer. You won't be able to be as big as you want to be or whatever. And I decided that I didn't care about the risks. I decided that it was just the right choice for us. I was married for six years before we had any children. And we were always like talking about it, discussing with my husband, trying to decide the correct time frame for us. And when we were ready, we had a daughter. And then a year later, like I said, we decided, well, let's have another. So, cause we traveled around with her for a year and she, she was great. She was such an easy baby. She slept really well. So we were like, wow, we're great at this. We're so good at this. <laughs> It's nothing to do with us. Parents are so funny. You think you have control, but really they come complete. The individuals come to you as like a complete package. I don't, I don't know how much influence you ultimately even have. I mean, some, and it's important that you do your best, but basically I think you get more out of it than you end up giving, which is bizarre because you're giving so much. Yeah. It's like a nonstop (laughs) fountain of energy you have to supply. And anyway, but, um, So we decided to have another, and then I became spontaneously pregnant with twins, and they were really colicky in the beginning. And I was like, wow, what have we gotten ourselves into? And I went through this tailspin for a while. Like, it was just so intense. And the first year of my twins' life, I think I made seven major role debuts. So trying to learn this music with no sleep and, like, I don't, I don't feel like there was enough support in the world to make it easy. It was so hard and things get easier and easier every year, I will say. And we're working out our own path, but now this is the schematic. My daughter is five. She started kindergarten in the fall. So the twins now are three and a half years old. It's working really well. We travel together the majority of the time. This gig in Boston is only five days. So I came by myself, but I call them constantly and I have to touch base as much as I possibly can. But anyway, when I was beginning, people said, you can't have both. And I decided, well, I'm just going to have both. Maybe if it means the career doesn't end up very big, but I'm enjoying a pretty hefty career and I have, I have a family. I don't know how long we're going to be able to maintain this constant travel together situation. I mean, it seems silly to quit by the time they're old enough to carry their own freaking suitcase. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, it's just, it's, it's intense. The point I'm trying to make is this, the people who told me I couldn't have both were wrong, Mm -hmm. but in order to have both, you have to, you have to have a really reliable support structure. In my case, it is the majority of it is my incredibly supportive husband. And we work hard together to maintain a happy household. And it is always a challenge. We need to constantly revisit and make sure that everyone's needs are met. You know, this analogy with the spinning plates that 
you're spinning plates on sticks and the minute you spin one, you notice the other one is falling. So you have to go spin that one. And then the first one's falling again and you just go back and forth, like spinning all these plates. It's really intense. It's not for the faint of heart, but you can do it if you have a reliable support structure. Mm-hmm. I think the point you made about Placido Domingo saying that it will help you as an artist to have your family. Yeah. I think that's mm-hmm. a really important point to come back and address. Like how have you seen having your family benefit your art? Well, I weirdly, it gave me a little bit of distance from it. Like when I didn't have any children, I think it was like my primary focus in life. And this obsessive focus can sometimes cause tension and prevent you from achieving your artistic potential. Whereas now I have children. I mean, it's ironic because it's never, I support the family financially. It's never been more important that I do well. But I feel less invested. Like if I go home after one that didn't go very well, I'm like, oh, well, you know, whereas I used to be like, now I have to kill myself. Oh, gosh, I cracked a high note or whatever. I was so upset. And now I'm like, well, what's the next task we have to take care of? I'm so engaged and invested in the family. And I know that that's more important. They will love me no matter what. I mean, if I get a bad review... They don't care. Like, they still love me so much. The children, if I get a bad review, if I do, if I tank in a performance so badly, which hopefully doesn't happen very often, but, you know, everyone's human. If I walk in the door, they go, mommy, and they run to me, and they hug me, and they love me so much, and I love them so much, and we're so happy together, and it's like, this is what life is about. Also, there are characters who have family struggles that now I can relate to in a way I couldn't before. Sure. Because being a parent makes you feel things you don't feel you don't even see them coming. You can't, you can sort of conceptualize, but like, I don't know, it's biological. Yeah. I love this concept. Um, Yo-Yo Ma came and visited and did a masterclass at New England Conservatory when I was here. By the way, like the nicest human that was ever born. Am I right? Like, yeah, he's amazing. He's so talented. And his, that's maybe the source of his artistry is this benevolence that he just exudes. Every time I've interacted with him, I've been like, wow, you really care about me for some reason. I don't know. How do you know who I, you don't know who I am. I mean, he's the nicest person I've ever met. Yeah. And one thing that he mentioned to the the students he was working with in the cello masterclass was that like, you know, the same thing, people focus on their art so intensely that they forget to live. And that you really owe it to your art to live your life. Like yeah. once, once you actually take that time to, to really develop a strong life and a f- meaningful, fulfilling life, that's going to reflect positively on the art you're producing. Absolutely. I agree. Because that's what art's about really is helping you to have a more abundant, full life and like really understanding it. Yeah. Yeah. And really processing the experiences, the emotional experiences that you have, I think that that is enabled through art. And when we do it correctly, people leave better off. Their loads are lightened. Mm -hmm. Even if you're telling heavy source material, somehow going through that with the audience together, everyone is enlightened rather than bogged down or or harmed by the experience. So even something as horrible as like Yenufa, Yenufa is so sad. It's so awful. And there's a dead baby and she gets this big scar on her face because he loves her. So he slashed her face. Like it's this weird. But when you watch these things, these, these events, these horrible even stories, they, first of all, they help you develop compassion for your fellow men. You get to imagine scenarios, microcosmic cultural environments you would never be privy to without the experience of the art form. It's just good for you. It's good for you to experience art. It's good for us to make art as humans. It's very healthy. But it, you're right. It doesn't, it's not for nothing. It's for the benefit of the rest of your life, which is really the point. 
Yeah. So it should be like this um, cyclical thing, you know, like your life is influencing your art and your art is influencing your life. Yes. Just I totally agree. Yeah. And then ultimately we, we achieve a, a higher level of cultural understanding and kindness and generosity toward our fellow men. Thank you so much. I'm so excited that you were able to be here. Please check out her stuff at her website, Rachel Willis Sorensen, on Instagram at the same name, Rachel Willis Sorensen. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you to everyone who tuned in for our 10th episode on The Holistic Voice. If you haven't already, be sure to take a look at our Instagram account, The Holistic Voice Podcast, where we are sharing exclusive content and prepping all of the podcast episodes that we create week to week to week. We really want to hear from you, and we really appreciate the feedback we've gotten so far from you all on social media and on reviews on iTunes. So if you have a moment, take a second and review the the podcast or leave us a message on Instagram. All right, Jordan, I haven't forgotten. Please, would you be able to share a little bit of what you have been working on for your song? Sure. This is called July 1969. Have you heard the news? They took a man and they put him on the moon. They say he'll be So that was a bit of my song. To hear the whole thing, wait for the video release on April 9th, and we'll post about it so you can check it out. Thanks so much for listening.